Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, a filmmaker, comedian, and whatever you do, don't sell that cow. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I can't wait to hear you tell that one on stage in your act. That would be that would be amazing. I mean, you know, if if Gene Hackman can pull it off, why can't I, you know? Yeah. <laughs> What's know? he ever done, right? He's not a stand-up comedian, so you got that over him. He could probably do but anything though if he wanted to. He probably could. He oh. probably could, and I'm sure we'll uh, discuss that soon. So in this special 10th season of Awesome Movie Year, we are looking back at all of the years we covered in previous seasons and taking one movie from each of those years that we didn't talk about and getting to it now. And so in this episode, we are returning to the awesome movie year of 1967. And we are talking about a movie that Jason picked that Jason has been talking about uh, since that season and really uh, pushing for us to cover, and rightly so. So what is the movie we're talking about, Jason? The movie is Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, Josh, like you said, I remember when during the season, I said, how are we not doing this? How are we not doing this? And I rewatched it probably around the time that we were doing 1967. And it just made me feel even stronger that we we have to we have to do this one. And I agree. I'm glad that we got to it. This is not only for 1967, but in film history, just an extraordinarily important and influential film and a great film um, that uh, I enjoyed revisiting. And Jason, you saw it this time for this podcast, really not that long after the last time you saw it, right? And Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you can burn out on stuff like that, but it was, it's, such a great movie and there's so much you can learn from each time. Like I loved watching it again. Yeah, I did too. Um, I really enjoyed watching it and there's so much to unpack here. So hopefully we can get to all of that. Um, this movie was a massive success also in 1967. It's not one of those movies that slowly became influential over time. It was huge right out of the gate. It grossed $70 million on its $2.5 million budget. So huge box office hit. It was the number three highest grossing movie of 1967. It was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, uh, Best Director for Arthur Penn, Best Actor for Warren Beatty, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman and Michael J. Pollard, Best Original Screenplay, Best Costume Design. It won two Oscars for Best Supporting Actress for Estelle Parsons and Best Cinematography for uh, Burnett Guffey, which if you had to guess like which of the Oscars it was nominated for, would it win? I feel like those wouldn't necessarily be the ones that I would have guessed, but that was maybe partly due to the competition from that year, what it ended up with. Yeah, as we talked about in our Cool Hand Luke episode, or in our graduate episode, uh, I should say, uh, Robert L. Surtees was against himself in this category for cinematography, so he might have canceled himself out between the graduate and Dr. Doolittle, right? But um, And I mentioned Cool Hand Luke because Conrad Hall was also up for In Cold Blood. But yeah, um, the ones that stuck out to me, and we talked about this in 67, Josh, are like, Best actor, Rod Steiger, we know one for In the Heat of the Night. Warren Beatty for this. 
Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke, Spencer Tracy. Guess who's coming to dinner? Like, how how do you how do you do that? How do you pick right. one in that? Yeah, category? it's it's amazing. And so, I mean, I think that's why I look at Estelle Parsons and like that's the of all the actors in the movie, that's who won. But maybe her competition was weaker than that kind of insanely stacked lineup that you just read. Well, Josh, it was Carol Channing for Thoroughly Modern Millie. And oh, dear, what a wonderful chance for me to do a Carol Channing impression. I don't even know if that's good. I just know Ryan Stiles does it, I think. Who's yeah. like Mildred Natwick, Barefoot in the Park, B. Richards for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Catherine Ross to graduate. So I will have to say, other than Catherine Ross, I'm not familiar with those other performances. So maybe Estelle Parsons was the best of the bunch. But either way, a hugely acclaimed and awarded film. It was also nominated for seven Golden Globes and four BAFTAs. It won two WGA awards and a whole list of of minor uh, and other awards internationally. Everyone was racing to give this movie an award, which was sort of surprising given that the overall response to it was polarizing. Yeah, Josh, one thing you mentioned was that it wasn't um, like one of these things that had to grow to become a hit. But it did have to overcome a studio that didn't like it, a chairman and Jack Warner who didn't want to release it and or even make it. And when they first released it, wide release it, they just did, you know, like this kind of specialty platform release until Beatty was just like, look, man, we're doing well everywhere you put us. Just throw us out there. And then, like you said, it, it exploded right away. Yeah. And, and again, it wasn't despite all these awards and nominations that I just read off. It wasn't universally acclaimed. It was highly acclaimed by the people who loved it, but it was very vehemently decried by the people who didn't like it. And I'm sure, as often happens even now with movies, that something like that fuels the success of it. People read about it in the newspaper. They see magazine articles about it. They think, I got to see this movie. And what is all the fuss about? I'm going to go buy a ticket to it. Yeah, um, part of that, Josh, I think is maybe I wonder if this is the first new Hollywood movie. You know, we talk about the new Hollywood of the 70s and how it started. Easy Rider gets credit in 69, although, you know, there were these movies before it. And you know, I, uh, I've i been reading uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, Peter Bisking's famous book about new Hollywood. And, and this is the first movie they cover in it. So maybe this is the prototype for what's to become. And like you said, the Hayes Code ends around this time. People have more freedom, as we see with the ending of this movie, to showcase uh, violence. And this might have been hated because it was so revolutionary. It's totally like for us, we see it and we're like, whoa, cool movie, this, that, and that. It's totally different than what had been on screen in America before. Yeah, that's true. And I think it is. I mean, this is more the legacy of it, but it is really the catalyst for that whole new Hollywood era that we associate mainly with the 70s with a little later than this. But this movie, as well as the end of the Hayes Code, which came shortly afterwards, uh, really is a spark for that whole movement that came in the 1970s that people like Warren Beatty and Gene Hackman were a major, major part of. But it's, it's, it's really kind of amazing to read the strong, strong response to this film that was out in the press at the time. 
And I'm going to be kind of maybe uh, a little indulgent here with the reviews because, I mean, not only was this movie hugely influential on Hollywood, as, as we're just saying, but this movie changed the course of film criticism as well. Um, in the way that critics responded to this movie and the way it kind of became this line in the sand of how you responded to Bonnie and Clyde was a sort of litmus test of, are you forward thinking? Are you a critic who can handle what is coming in the cinema or are you going to be left behind? Hey, Josh, that's an interesting point And I was unaware of that. Like what kind of research were you able to do that kind of led you to that conclusion, because I didn't know that. Well, there's two major things, and I'll read both of these reviews momentarily, but one of them is Bosley Crowther, who we always uh, mock for his extremely Mm -hmm. stuffy sounding name. Mm -hmm. And it's appropriate for this episode because Bosley Crowther, in his stuffiness, hated Bonnie and Clyde. And whether it's 100% true or not, his review of Bonnie and Clyde is cited as the reason that he was booted from the New York Times as their main film critic. Um, And other younger, more progressive people were brought in. Um, So the other thing, and I'll get to this as well, and I have so much of it, but Pauline Kael's review of Bonnie and Clyde in The New Yorker, which was an extremely positive, but also very, very nuanced and detailed, and not always 100% positive, but something that took this movie very, very seriously, the opposite of what Bosley Crowther did, that review is possibly the most famous movie review ever written. And trying to get some quotes from from these both reviews, there were, of course, the the 50th anniversary of Bonnie and Clyde was, you know, just a few years ago, and a lot of think pieces about it. And there were multiple articles about the 50th anniversary of Pauline Kael's review of Bonnie and Clyde. So, this is a big, it's a big deal. And it's also just amazing to see it's nearly 10,000 words long. It is the length of like a novella almost. And what's the longest review you've ever written, Josh? Mm, a review, maybe 1,200 words, something like that. Okay. Um, but it was, it was written in the New Yorker and it was, you know, sort of the opposite of what happened to Bosley Crowther. This review got Pauline Kale the job as the film critic for The New Yorker, which she then held for decades afterwards. So super wonky film criticism stuff here, but you did ask about it. <laughs> One other thing is, you know, Pauline Kale was known not just for championing movies that she liked, but also uh, hanging out with the filmmakers that she liked and everything. So uh, I don't doubt that, you know, she and Beatty and Penn were you know, having fancy lunches in in New York hotels around this time. It's possible, although this was, again, this was kind of the beginning of her ascent to being Pauline Kael and being this big deal, and she wasn't there yet. So let's start with Bosley Crowther, who hated this movie. And he said in the New York Times, it is a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy that treats the hideous depredations of that sleazy, moronic pair as though they were as full of fun and frolic as the Jazz Age cut-ups in Thoroughly Modern Millie. And it puts forth Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway in the leading roles and Michael J. Pollard as their sidekick, a simpering, nose-picking rube, as though they were striving mightily to be the Beverly Hillbillies of next year. Such ridiculous, 
camp-tinctured travesties of the kind of people these desperados were and of the way people lived in the dusty Southwest back in those barren years might be passed off as candidly commercial movie comedy, nothing more, if the film weren't reddened with blotches of violence of the most grisly sort. This blending of farce with brutal killings is as pointless as it is lacking in taste, since it makes no valid commentary upon the already travestied truth, and it leaves an astonished critic wondering just what purpose Mr. Penn and Mr. Beatty think they serve with this strangely antique, sentimental claptrap. So he didn't like it. No, no, he didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I, I, hmm, there's a lot to dissect. Let me just take on two points. Like, uh, the violence, I can understand, is shocking, but I can't see how you could say it wasn't exciting. Like, some of those shootouts when the, you know, when the police track them down to the, you know, hideouts and everything. And we have those like the shootouts between the lawmen and the, and the barrow gang. Those are amazing and still hold up as amazing scenes. And, um, you know, from an editing standpoint, just as an editor, you would watch that as a masterclass, you know, for the pacing and the speed of it. And the other thing, and again, this goes back to Bisking's book is he seemed to have missed the whole point, you know, which is that there is a message to this movie. Right. And sure, does it make Bonnie and Clyde? Uh, you can argue they're a little too put on a pedestal as heroes. But I think what it is, is what we still deal with today. Rich, the rich society, people holding down the poor people. Right. And when the banker jumps on the uh, car and and Clyde has to shoot him and he says, I ain't got nothing against him. Right. It's not the people they're against. It's the system that's holding them down. And you see that in the Dust Bowl and everything. And um, I think he just kind of missed that. And that's what a lot of people gravitated to and why they thought they were cult heroes, at least in this film, was because they could get behind someone fighting against the system that's oppressing them. Rage against the machine, bro. Yes, um, I agree that he's missed that. Although part of the the criticism or the protests against the violence in this film is maybe in part because of what you're saying is that because it's exciting, people thought that this glorified violence. Um, and Pauline Kael talks a lot in her review about the protests against this film and, and the depictions of violence. Um, but I think you're right that it has a message that he's clearly missed. I'm not sure if it makes Bonnie and Clyde the heroes per se. To me, what I think is interesting is that on the one hand, they are fighting against that system. And there's a lot here about what you're just talking about, the, the government and corporations uh, mistreating poor people. And the only way to do anything is to, to fight back with violence. But I think also Bonnie and Clyde are not heroes and they're not depicted as heroes. It's like what they're doing is also terrible. And the point is that there's no other way to respond to the system that this system has forced them into this position of doing something awful. They're not heroes, they're murderers and they're terrible people, but the system has pushed them to that point where they don't know what else to do. I think that's totally fair and a good take. And the idea uh, that we see in a lot of movies in different ways of just not wanting to be ordinary, right? To leave a mark, so to speak. But, you know, like you're saying, they have their comeuppance, not just at the end, but throughout the film many times. 
And deservedly so. I mean, I don't feel like we get to the end of this movie and think Bonnie and Clyde should have gotten away with it all. Well, that's a controversial take, Josh. Yeah. You don't think that those <laughs> robbing murderers should have gotten away with that's it. That's me really going out on a limb there with murder is bad. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. Um, Dave, so, mark it down. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, we'll get some uh, really uh, impassioned responses to that one from listeners. <laughs> Um, so before I get to Pauline Kale, Roger Ebert, who, uh, wait, was, Josh. Yes. Do you want to make your stance on robbery clear before we go on? Also bad. <laughs> also bad. Although again, you know, in this context, we can argue that, you know, stealing from this corrupt system, not always as bad as murdering people. Right. Not as bad a, 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 in general, but also there's that scene in the bank where, he asked one of the patrons during the holdup, like, is that your money or the bank's money? And the farmer says it's his money. And he said, will you keep it then? Right. So it's a clear delineation of what they're doing. Right. But of course, on the other hand, the bank is full of people's money. And this is a time before banks were insured. And so if your money was in the bank and the bank was robbed, you don't get your money back. So mm. that's a kind of a faulty argument. Catch 22. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so robbing bad also. Robbing also bad, yes. Cool. Um, Go on then. Thank you. So so Roger Ebert was just starting out. This was actually one of the earliest reviews that he wrote and proving himself to be, again, the, the kind of critic who would become dominant in the next decades. He gave this a four-star review and thought it was great. He said, Bonnie and Clyde is a milestone in the history of American movies, a work of truth and brilliance. It is also pitilessly cruel, filled with sympathy, nauseating, funny, heartbreaking, and astonishingly beautiful. If it does not seem that those words should be strung together, perhaps that is because movies do not very often reflect the full range of human life. This is pretty clearly the best American film of the year. It is also a landmark. Years from now, it is quite possible that Bonnie and Clyde will be seen as the definitive film of the 1960s showing with sadness, humor, and unforgiving detail what one society had come to. The fact that the story is set 35 years ago doesn't mean a thing. It had to be set sometime, but it was made now, and it's about us. So very uh, prescient uh, thoughts there from you. Yeah. Do you think it's the defining movie of the 60s? I mean, I think the 60s uh, are full of such an explosion of art and film is part of that, that it would be hard to say. Um, but it, it, I think it would be a good candidate. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. What would you say? I'd say this, The Graduate and Easy Rider from American films are the are the three that pop out in my head right away. Yeah, I'm sure I could think of more if I you know gave it some time. But certainly Easy Rider especially is considered as that zeitgeist of, of what we think of as sort of the 60s quote in the counterculture. Yeah, yeah, which is really like the late 60s. Um, but, you know, I think this could be a good candidate. And in part, maybe this is a better candidate because it's reflective. You know, it's set in the 30s and it looks back on history and it shows the distance from the 60s to to the 30s. Um, but, you know, Ebert knew what he was talking about. So, like I said, Pauline Kael's review is nearly 10,000 words long and I'm not going to you're going to read it all oh yeah, no because so. it would uh it would take up our entire podcast and then some it took me quite a while just to read it to myself um and it's it's very digressive it talks a lot about other movies and cultural ideas and whatever so it's hard to pare it down 
So I actually have two excerpts I'm going to read because they're about kind of two uh, aspects of it. And she starts kind of talking about the controversy. She says, how do you make a good movie in this country without being jumped on? Bonnie and Clyde is the most excitingly American American movie since The Manchurian Candidate. The audience is alive to it. Our experience as we watch it has some connection with the way we reacted to movies in childhood, with how we came to love them and to feel that they were ours, not an art that we learned over the years to appreciate, but simply and immediately ours. Yet any movie that is contemporary in feeling is likely to go further than other movies, go too far for some tastes. And Bonnie and Clyde divides audiences, as the Manchurian Candidate did, and it is being jumped on almost as hard. Though we may dismiss the attacks with, quote, what good movie doesn't give some offense, the fact that it is generally only good movies that provoke attacks by many people suggests that the innocuousness of most of our movies is accepted with such complacence that when an American movie reaches people, when it makes them react, some of them think there must be something the matter with it. Perhaps a law should be passed against it. Bonnie and Clyde brings into the almost frighteningly public world of movies things that people have been feeling and saying and writing about. And I think that's sort of the key thing that, that Bosley Crowther misses or doesn't like, that you know this is sort of unseemly and a movie shouldn't be dealing with this kind of thing. Right. I, and it's funny because if we look back at movies we've covered in Awesome Movie Year, you know, even the red pill, red pill versus the blue pill, we're talking about that with The Matrix or look at Amadeus and, you know, how he Mozart wasn't the popular one. He was the revolutionary at the time. Right. So there's all these things throughout art and throughout the history of art. And it's always going to be the ones that push the boundaries and the fringes that aren't universally beloved for the most part. Right. So. I think she makes good points um, that there's definitely, you know, the light FM that anyone can listen to all the time. Right. But sometimes you got to rock, baby. Yes. Yes. And so she goes further. I want to read this one other excerpt about uh, violence and sort of the purpose of art and cinema. She says, part of the power of art lies in showing us what we are not capable of. We see that killers are not a different breed, but are us without the insight or understanding or self-control that works of art strengthen. The tragedy of Macbeth is in the fall from nobility to horror. The comic tragedy of Bonnie and Clyde is that although you can't fall from the bottom, you can reach the same horror. The movies may set styles in dress or lovemaking. They may advertise cars or beverages, but art is not examples for imitation. That is not what a work of art does for us. Though that is what guardians of morality think art is and what they want it to be and why they think a good movie is one that sets, quote, healthy, cheerful examples of behavior, like a giant all-purpose commercial for the American way of life. But people don't buy what they see in a movie quite so simply. Louis B. Mayer did not turn us into a nation of Andy Hardys, and if, in a film, we see a frightened man wantonly take the life of another, it does not encourage us to do the same, any more than seeing an ivory hunter shoot an elephant makes us want to shoot one. It may, on the contrary, so sensitize us that we get a pang in the gut if we accidentally step on a moth. So she's saying it was sort of the opposite argument of what a lot of people would say about depictions of violence, that the more violence you see in the movie, it horrifies you and it, it makes you uh, averse to violence rather than wanting to embrace it. Right. I mean, it's tough for us to 
talk about this in the context because this was so shocking and graphic at the time. And right now it would just be another run of the bill, you know, ending. Right. But, you know, the problem here is to generalize it either way. There are going to be people who play video games and say, oh, that's cool. I wish I could shoot someone in real life. And they'll say, but at least I get to shoot them in a video game. And then there's going to be someone who picks up one and say like, oh, I could do this in a video game. I'm going to try it in real life. But I don't think that's the influence, right? It's it's just, that's people, man. Yeah. I mean, I think just a lot of what she's saying here has a lot of relevance. And, and you're right that this movie in particular maybe doesn't look shocking to people in 2022, but there are the equivalent of this of this kind of thing that come out that people still find shocking now and are against. And I think too, she gets to something that a lot of uh, people, especially on social media, ha- have harped on recently. And the idea that movies should have, you know, good movies should have sort of the right kind of morality to them. And, you know, the idea of depiction not being endorsement, that you can watch a movie about terrible people doing terrible things. And that doesn't mean that the movie itself is, you know, endorsing all this kind of behavior. And I think that, uh, you know, that gets lost in a lot of social media discourse. So, I mean, it's impressive to me uh, how much of what she's talking about is still important. And again, this is a very, very long review, and there are large portions of it that are not necessarily still relevant. But um, I would encourage anyone who is interested in film criticism and the history of film criticism to read this review, uh, which I had not read before uh, getting ready to do this podcast, but I'm glad that I finally did. Josh, I think these conversations, like, you know, I just mentioned Amadeus, they've probably always gone on about art, right? Like a controversial painting or anything like that, where it's like, oh, what about the influence it's going to have? And it's like, man... Art is there to shake things up and break things and, um, you know, be an outsider's view of what it is, right? So if all we had was like, you know, the nice, easy stuff that kept us fat and happy, what's the point? Like, not to say there's not a place for that, too, but you got to you got to have the the true artists out there, man. No, I agree. And it does go back, you know, whether it's Stravinsky in his classical symphonies that shocked people and they walked out. Or like you said, controversial paintings or rock music in the 80s or, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And it, there's always some new version of it that comes up. And it's it's the same kind of discourse over and over again, certainly. Yeah, I remember that painting where it was like, a, uh, it was in like a Brooklyn museum or something and it was Jesus, but it had like some human feces on it or something. Is and it, uh, piss, uh, piss Christ, I think is what that's called. I want to say. Okay. And I remember, you know, that was that was probably what twenty years ago, and that was they were going to ban that. And it's like you can't you can't limit art, man. Yeah, that was at least I think that was probably more than twenty years ago. But you know, our uh, uh, sense of time has been distorted. Piss, Piss Christ is from nineteen eighty seven by Andres Serrano, uh, whose work I know because he did a couple of Metallica album covers that also include <laughs> bodily fluids in in the uh, in the artwork there. So all ties back. Um, All right, there you go. Thank you. Yes. So, so Jason, I think the first time you and I saw this movie was in our film club with Tony Macklin. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that was the first time, and I remember liking it a lot then. And then the second time, I just fell in love with this thing, which was the one I told you about, uh, which was when we were in sixty-seven season. And then 
And now I just hold it up as one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, I think watching it that first time in the film club, and we were talking about this uh, before when we were preparing for this, like, I feel like a lot of times I watch a movie like this that is so renowned, that's a classic, is super influential, that's supposed to be, you know, so great. And sometimes it's a bit uh, underwhelming just because that you, you cannot have higher expectations. And I liked this movie definitely when we watched it in our film club, but I think coming back to it the second time, and this has happened to me before with big classic movies, I appreciated it even more. And I think I maybe don't love it as much as you did, but it is a great, great, great movie. And it is amazing to see how influential it is and also how fresh some of those techniques are uh, still, even watching it today, uh, even with so many movies that have been influenced by it. Um, and I also, it, it's interesting to compare it. So um, before this came out, there were a number of movies that were sort of partially inspired by the Bonnie and Clyde story, which of course was really, really famous actual story, uh, movies like Gun Crazy and They Live By Night and You Only Live Once. Um, and I've seen Gun Crazy and uh, They Live By Night, which are both really good. Um, but the only other movie that was uh, explicitly telling this true story is a movie from 1958 that's a super low budget exploitation movie called The Bonnie Parker Story that I just I watched before this. And it's it's kind of fun. And Dorothy Provine is the actress who plays Bonnie Parker. and uh, it's super low budget and they play her more like a fifties pinup, uh, than like an actual person from the 1930s. And there's all sorts of anachronistic rock music in it. Um, it's kind of entertainingly sleazy, but it's the kind of thing that it just graphs this story onto a typical exploitation style picture. And this movie does so much more than just tell this story in the expected way. I'm glad you brought that up, Josh, because I mean, look, we know all the acting's great and Faye Dunaway as Bonnie is as a much of a highlight as anybody in here, right? But what a well-drawn character also, you know? You got Warren Beatty, who's the movie star and, you know, the man, right, in the 60s, Clyde, and he's the one who kind of leads the gang. So you could easily see it just focused on him, but they really do such a good job of making Bonnie a three-dimensional character. They do. And I mean, the, the one, one weird strength that's very inaccurate about that uh, exploitation movie is that they make Bonnie, it is her story, and they make her the leader of the gang, and she's bossing the Clyde character who they give a different name to, that she's bossing them all around, and all these men are like beneath her heels. And it's quite entertaining, but it's probably not at all accurate. Um, but yeah, I mean, what this movie does, not only does it make Bonnie a full character, but other supporting characters, uh, Buck, you know, Gene Hackman's character, Clyde's brother, and Michael J. Pollard as C.W. Moss, and Estelle Parsons, who won her Oscar. Like, you understand all of these people and their parts that they play in this gang and the reasons that they come in to commit these crimes and the, the reasons that they're involved. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a very full, well-rounded portrait of all these characters and not just these are sleazy criminals. Yes, although I will say in my research, I came across two things which is Blanche, Buck's wife, who was a fan of the original script, hated her portrayal of how they made her uh, in the movie. That What did she say? She was just like a screaming clown or something along those lines. And then the one person who did not, a screaming horse's ass is what she called herself. Um, and the one person who I think did not get a fair shake is, uh, is the Texas uh, lawman, Frank Hamer, um, and his wife and son sued for defamation of character and 
received an out-of-court settlement for the way he was portrayed in this film. Yeah, and that's not surprising because they do make him seem like a whole buffoon and he's representative of the system and in a way that maybe, you know, the real guy didn't, uh, you know, particularly act that way. Um, And I think Blanche's character in this movie was more inspired by uh, the girlfriend or wife of one of the other gang members who was uh, more like that. And perhaps they thought that that would suit better the story that they wanted to tell. C.W. Moss is also a composite character of a couple of uh, different Barrow gang members. Uh, W.D. Jones was the one who was still alive at the time and also was able to see the movie and comment on it. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the other criticisms from people who were against this movie was that it wasn't fully accurate to the true story. Uh, But I think it's any true story movie is going to take liberties to make the movie, you know, to to tell the story that the movie wants to tell. And so I'm fine with that. Yeah, we're, um, you know, we we talked about Amadeus, so the emotion that they're playing, right? So um, if we were if we were grading on historical accuracy, most movies would probably fail. Right. And if you're meticulously historically accurate, you lose a lot of the feeling and the the narrative drive and a lot of things that make a movie like to make a good movie good. So Dave, uh, had you seen this one before? I had not. Somehow I had never gotten around to this. And uh, we were just like uh, heaping all this praise on it. But uh, spoiler alert, Dave didn't really like this movie. (laughs) Yeah, not not that much. But as a piece of film history, I 100% see everything that everybody loves about this movie, how influential this is on most, if not all of my favorite movies of all time. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's all there. Uh, I just didn't like the story or the characters that much, you know, but th- that's, you know, that's just me. Dave is a boss. That's the guy character. who had um, Malcolm and Marie on his top 10 list of 2021. <laughs> Jason's so, going to keep you know, bringing he didn't like up. the story or the, he didn't like the story of the characters of Bonnie and Clyde, but Malcolm and Marie made it through. Always. Even when it's not <laughs> at all relevant, Jason's going to keep bringing that <laughs> one up. Always. So uh, any other uh, background info you want to mention on this, Jason? Well, I mean, Arthur Penn and Beatty had worked together in 65 on Mickey One, which sounds like a pretty crazy, interesting movie. I tried to get a hold of it, but I wasn't able to. Um, So, uh, you know, this is one of those pictures that um, uh, had been floating around, right? Benton, Robert Benton and uh, David Newman wrote it in the early 60s. And it kind of felt like two French new wave to people and they couldn't find the right, the right director. And it went to Francois Truffaut and then he and Beatty met and then Beatty bought the rights to it. He brought in Robert town who we know is as famous as a screenwriter as there has ever been And town and Beatty kind of put their own touches on it. And after going through, you know, 12 to 15 directors, they, uh, they pen agreed to do it. He had turned it down a few times. What's interesting is because Jack Warner didn't want to make this movie, Beatty took one of those classic, like, just just pay me nothing deals up front. And he had he ended up with 40 percent of the profits and he gave to get Penn in there. He uh, gave Penn 10 percent of those profits. So, like you said, 70 million on a a two million dollar budget, two and a half million dollar budget. Not a bad gamble at that time. Yeah. Smart, smart move for for those guys. Also, can we just say, and I don't know what two and a half million equals today, but like this movie really made the most of its budget. 
Yeah, it doesn't look like a low budget. I mean, again, having watched that uh, American International Pictures version, um, this looks much more uh, expensive and lavish, and they they make the most of that. Um, whether they cut corners or whatever they did, it doesn't look like they had to skimp on anything. So, yeah, impressively, you know, the technical achievements of this movie are impressive all around. So we will come back then in a moment and get more into our general thoughts on Bonnie and Clyde. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special 10th retrospective season, we are returning to 1967 to talk about Jason's pick, Bonnie and Clyde. And we've talked a lot already about what's great about this movie, but Jason, what what is your favorite thing about this movie or what what made you so interested in having us talk about it? I mean, I, I, like I said, I think it's as close to a perfect movie as there is, as we've covered. Um, I love the mood, you know, how does, you know, they're talking about this kind of tragedy, comic, violent, uh, in a way, gangster picture, right? Robbers and everything. And Somehow it pulls it all off and it has just this amazing uh, development of characters. It has really great what you would consider action scene shootouts, chases, whatnot. And it has tons of drama. I don't know. It just all works for me. I mean, I agree generally. I mean, I don't know if I would call it a perfect film. I mean, that's a pretty high bar that that almost no films would reach. But I mean, this is a fantastic movie. And the performances are great. Uh, like I was saying just before the break, the the technical achievements of this, it's, it's sort of unconscionable to me that of all the Oscar nominations that this got, Dee Dee Allen, the editor, was not nominated because the editing in this movie is just flawless. It is yeah, amazing. That makes no sense. That, that makes no sense. I would say the same thing about the music because using that bluegrass in a picture like this is kind of totally anachronistic and it just it just adds to the thrill of the whole thing. Yeah, and it was interesting to me one thing that that struck me reading those reviews and both the positive and negative reviews talk about how this is almost that this is like a comedy and that it's or that it starts as a comedy and then it hits you with the violence. I never saw this as a comedy even if it might have a moment, you know, occasional moments of humor. Do you see this as a comedy in any way, Jason? Uh, no, I did not. I didn't read it as a comedy. I mean, I guess the palling around between, you know, the gang, especially Clyde and Buck. And, you know, there is a hilarious sequence, I will say. the stu- And I love it. It's Gene Wilder's first performance on film and where the Barrow game kind of kidnaps uh, him and his girlfriend and kind of takes him on this joyride. And, Everything about that sequence is is very, very good and very, very funny to me. It is funny. And I mean, Gene Wilder, by not doing anything overtly comedic, is just funny in that scene in the way he's this sort of nervous Genius. guy. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he's been trying to impress this girl and it seems like maybe it's not been going all that well. And, it, you know, the shift that from being afraid to being like, oh, we're cool because we're hanging out with Bonnie and Clyde now with the Barrow gang is is really fun. And it, it's great too, the way that that scene shifts on a dime that the whole gang are enjoying hanging out with them as well. And then they ask Gene Wilder's character, what do you do for a living? And he says he's an undertaker. And then immediately you can see in Faye Dunaway's face, Bonnie's whole demeanor changes. And she's like, you know, get rid of these people right now. 
And it the reminder of that shift and you know what what's at stake for for the characters. Right. So maybe it's not a comedy, but the a, the ability to go to and from tones and make it work as an overall piece is pretty awesome. The other thing about that that's so genius, Josh, is we start with um, you know, for the most part, the movie is always from Bonnie or Clyde's point of view, right? And with this sequence, we see uh, Eugene and I think Velma was her name, right? And they're on the bed, they're on the the porch, and they're kissing, and you know, they're talking about their future and all this fun stuff. And that's how we get into the the Barrow Gang stealing their car, and then they chase. Oh, I'm gonna get him! I'm gonna get him so good, Velma, right? You know, I'm gonna knock him out. And then the Barrow Gang kind of reverses, and then they chase him and get him. But we see that. He loves this woman and wants to be with her until she accidentally reveals that she's 33 years old. And he, like you said, he doesn't play the comedy of it. He plays the truth in it of someone of the 30s who would be dating a woman uh, who was still single in her 30s. And the shock and horror of that, just just wonderful work from uh, Gene Wilder. There. Yeah, that is a great little moment. And there's a lot of little moments like that. Another thing that is sort of comedic to me that I love is that uh, after they, uh, one of their big bank robberies, the one you were describing earlier, where they ask the guy, is this your money? And he says it's, you know, or the banks, and he says it's his money and they let him keep it. And they, after they get away and they're being shot at and, you know, we see their, their frantic escape and it's intercut with these scenes of the people from the bank, the security guards, and that guy whose money was given back to him. And they're all basking in the attention of the newspapers and they're getting their photo taken. And they're so proud of having, you know, had this encounter with the Barrow Gang. And just the the contrast between that ridiculousness and the, the harrowing, uh, frantic nature of the gang trying to escape and the violence that they're, potentially being subjected to as the cops shoot at them and that they are perpetrating on the cops and anyone who chases them is also a great little contrast and a shift in tone. Something that I don't think that they would have done today, Josh, is, you know, they start with these like small time jobs um, that, you know, don't really work out. But I feel like today, within the first five minutes, we would have had a big shootout you know, maybe a freeze frame, like, how did we get here? Well, <laughs> it wasn't always like this, right? Yeah. Um, but the the build of them from like just kind of small time criminals who were trying to make their names to like, you know, really large, wanted, horrible robbers and murderers, like the jobs that they pull become much bigger. The murders are not there in the beginning of the movie. Like there is an ascension of the story, the drama, and the escalation of what they're doing. Yeah, it it is clear that they kind of, the whole situation snowballs, and it's not always within their control. Like, yeah, they're choosing what jobs to pull or whatever, but it's almost like this momentum that is beyond them. And because they become these huge subjects of fascination in the press, and also because of the societal conditions that we're talking about, this is the middle of the Depression. And they are 
fighting against this system because they don't have anything else that they can do, that they're pushed into these corners. And so it's almost like that is beyond them as people in their abilities to make their own personal choices, that it has to escalate to that point. And of course, Bonnie, at least especially, has this very fatalistic sense of the destiny of her and Clyde will be to be killed. And she talks about that in the poem that she writes that gets published in the newspaper. Which is a real poem that she wrote in, uh, which her mother ended up publishing after she died in real life. Yeah, in the movie, we see it being published while they're still alive. And and I love too that, I mean, this is, this is sticking to re- reality, but Bonnie is an awful poet. Her poetry is terrible. And, but it so fits. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, that's true, but it also just fits with the sort of, you know, working class or 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 just the, the naivete of these characters in a way that they jump into this. And that's why I'm saying they're not necessarily heroes of the system because they're they're pawns of the system in a way that they don't have anything else to do. Um, and so I think her clumsy mythologizing of them goes with that. Well, one other thing, Josh, uh, from a character standpoint, right? Clyde is impotent, right? He uh, can't get an erection and have sex. Um, and he's only able to in the film after that is published. And like they're reading it in the paper. And what gets him so aroused is this uh, greater uh, width of their fame now and everything, right? That, that's the thing that like gets it over the top for him. Yeah, let's talk about that aspect because what you're describing there, the idea that Clyde is impotent and, you know, eventually he's able to perform and that sort of like a evolution in their relationship. That's what a lot of reviews and and things that I read at the time talk about. And to me, I read it that Clyde was gay. And is that not did you read it that way at all? No, but you read that everyone's gay and everything. So <laughs> I mean, that's your thing. I, I and I and I, I don't know if, here, if real so. life Clyde Barrow was gay or if there's any you know evidence uh, one way or another about that. But to me, the way it was depicted in the movie, uh, you know, he starts out when they when the, the the first time that he tells Bonnie that he's you know not a lover boy, which I is ain't his, no lover boy, right? Which yeah. is his way of putting it. Um, you know, he's quick to say like, well, but it's, 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 you know, it's not like I, I, I like boys or anything. And very pointedly when he delivers that line, he, you know, like bumps his head on the, the roof of the car. He's very nervous. And I felt like that and his sort of like, uh, over the top denial of it and continued inability to, and I guess to me, it struck me less so as his inability to perform sexually with Bonnie as his disinterest in performing sexually with Bonnie, that he loves Bonnie as a person and cares about her deeply and tries to protect her and all of that, but that he doesn't have any sexual interest in her. Um, Well, the evolution of the script was uh, originally they were going to do like a um, a three-way relationship or, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and CW were going to all be sexually entangled with each other and not like a love triangle, but the th- like, a, you know, they were all going to have sex with each other and everything. But, you know, I think it was Beatty or Penn who said from a character standpoint, it has to be this other way. And to me, I just took it as, uh, I mean, maybe more on that surface level of um, 
it's interesting that you have this guy who's the most handsome movie star in the world, right? Playing this character who some people want to say is portrayed as the hero, right? And he has this extremely vulnerable condition that he has to bring up over and over again in the movie. And I think it gives him an insecurity and, and another dimension to the character. Yeah, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I just, I saw that dimension in a slightly different way, but I think however you read it, it, it definitely adds more. And I found it sort of poignant in the idea of him caring so much about Bonnie and loving Bonnie, even, or even, you know, or especially in a non-sexual way that they just have this like soul connection to each other that is immediate and unbreakable from like the moment that they meet. And she wants that consummated physically. She does. You know, she, she does want that intimacy. And I think Faye Dunaway is so good at portraying both a sensitivity and a disappointment that she can't have it all. Yeah. I mean, these are all great performances. Um, I don't know if we want to go, go through them all individually, but I mean, Dunaway and Beatty both are so good. This was one of Faye Dunaway's earliest roles. And, um, you know, it's not surprising to see that this was a massive breakout for her, that she became a huge star after this because, you know, and she goes toe to toe with Warren Beatty, who already was a massive star. And it's easy for people to get overshadowed by someone like that, but she never is. She always, uh, you know, matches him in every scene. Hackman is great as Buck who also is just sort of like drawn into this almost without being able to realize it or make the choice to it. Um, You know, those three performances I think are fantastic. Michael J. Pollard uh, is good, but maybe, you know, a bit more of a caricature as a character. And same goes for Estelle Parsons, who won that Oscar. I'm sympathetic to what Blanche Barrow says, that they turned her into a screaming horse's ass, even though that fits with the story. And she does have a very poignant moment where... Uh, Frank Hamer is manipulating her to get the name of C.W. Moss because they don't have his name. And he kind of pretends to be sympathetic to her plight while she's temporarily been blinded and she's got these bandages over her eyes and she's pouring her heart out to him and crying and being vulnerable. And he just walks away and she keeps talking and doesn't even realize that he's gone. And that's a nice acting moment, I think, for Estelle Parsons. But a lot of it is that uh, sort of shrieking level. I mean, she has some really good acting scenes. I think you're not giving her her due. The scene where Buck dies and she's surrounded by lawmen and she can she can do nothing except grieve from like a somewhat of a distance is really, really good stuff, too. Yeah, it it, it is. I, I guess I just comparatively, I thought there were so many more impressive and nuanced performances in this. But part of that is the writing and the way they want to portray the character. Yeah. So Arthur Penn, you know, we never really, this is the height of Arthur Penn. Yes. Right. And, and he worked all the time and has a, you know, theatrical, uh, he has theater background and, and made some other good movies, but like, this is just so far above and beyond. I think what we, what else we would consider with him. Right. And it's weird because you think that this is such a director's kind of thing, but given that both before and since he never had this level of boldness and creativity, you know, you have to give as much credit to David Newman and Robert Benton, the screenwriters, and to Warren Beatty 
as a, both a producer and a star and someone who shepherded this movie through, as you were saying earlier, all this long development and, and different potential directors, all of those people have a huge amount of, uh, of influence on the, the overall finished product. I'd add Dee Dee Allen in there because the editing is so key to how the storytelling goes here. Um, so, and speaking of that, I mean, do we want to talk about the ending here? Yeah, but really fast. Let me let me jump in on on Penn, Josh. Yeah, because I think Mickey One is also regarded as like, you know, not a classic by any means, but a precursor to this with Beatty and uh, Penn. And obviously, when we watch this, we see how influenced it is by the French New Wave and the fact that they gave it to Truffaut and they tried to get Godard to uh, direct it too. And there's some funny stuff there where. Goddard wanted to set this in the winter of New Jersey and the producers, not Beatty, but one of the other producers like, what? This, that doesn't make sense. The the movie took place in Texas or, you know, this this actually took place in Texas, which is a warm, you know, weather system. And and like Goddard just said, you're talking about climate and I'm talking about cinema, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of funny <laughs> stuff. And Goddard at the Academy Awards in 68 sent uh, Benton and Newman a note. That said, now let's do it all over again, you know? Um, So I do think that that influence of the French New Wave just permeates this movie and there's such an energy and risk-taking to it. And the ending is definitely one of those points, but another one is that really, really effective sequence where Bonnie finally gets to visit her family again and how it's shot in like this gauzy soft light and um, she's happy but she knows she can't be happy. And she even, they even say like, you know, we're going to move back and we'll be within three miles of you, mama. Wouldn't you like that? You know, mother Parker and she, and the mom who was just a local woman that they cast just said, I don't believe I would, you know, because she knows that Bonnie would be killed. And she knows that the path that her daughter chose means that they can't have the relationship that either of them want. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, two things first on your first point about the French new wave, I think it's great actually, or better that Truffaut or Godard didn't end up being the director of this film and to Arthur Penn's credit, because I think what makes this movie so exciting in part is the way that it combines those French New Wave influences with a Hollywood style. And if it had been directed by Truffaut or Godard, that wouldn't have been the case, you know? Yeah, this is an American movie. Right, and you want an American director. So Penn is able to synthesize those influences along with his own experience as a director of Hollywood movies and come up with something new and different that isn't just a Truffaut movie or a Godard movie. And the other thing about that that sequence, the uh, visiting the family sequence, in Pauline Kael's review, that's one of the few things that she really dislikes about the movie. And, And I don't dislike it per se, but it did feel, it felt a bit out of place to me to the point where watching it this time, I was thinking, is it possible that this is some sort of extended cut and this scene was originally not in the movie? Because it just seems a bit jarring, the way it's shot, like you're saying, with that gauzy filter, and it's kind of sentimental. And, and I do think there is as, there's elements of it that work really well, and what you're talking about, about the mother, you know, her understanding of like, you know, you can't come home because you are going to get killed is good. But I think it's a little too oh, look at this idyllic thing that they've lost, that uh, the rest of the movie is less on the nose and more trusting of the audience to make those connections. Okay, that's, I mean, you know, I, I'll agree to disagree. I just right. think like it shows that she can never really have 
what she wants. And that's part of the reason that she's so fatalistic. Right. No. And that's, that's absolutely what it does. I just feel like maybe it isn't as effective in getting that across as, as it could be if it were subtle, but, um, the ending not subtle at all. Um, but that I think is the right thing to do. And of course, that's really the moment where you see the harshness of the violence most starkly, you know, Bonnie and Clyde getting riddled with bullets and all of the blood and you never look away from what's going on. Um, the editing in that sequence is fantastic. These quick cuts between the two of them, the close-ups of their faces as they realize what's about to come. Uh, this was one of the first movies that ever used uh, squibs, the uh, you know exploding packets in the costumes of the actors so that the 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 gunshots could, you know, uh, have that impact. Um, and the the fake blood actually, you know, explodes from their chests, something that other films had not done before as a new special effects technique. All of this adds up to just something that's, even though you know it's coming, is shocking. Yeah, Josh, what I find so interesting, and and you broke it down well, kudos to you, sir, um, was, and maybe it's because we're watching it now, but the violence isn't what affected me the most. The, the What affected me the most is those shots that you're talking about where Bonnie and Clyde recognize what's about to happen and they look at each other and they have that moment of like, we, we had our run, didn't we? You know, and that was that was the emotional connection for me. And then afterwards, when they've just been shot 70 times and you just see these lawmen and just coming up and like just looking at the bodies because they became like that kind of tabloid fodder at that point in time. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, this sort of like, what did this all amount to kind of moment, you know, here they are just lying on the ground dead. And that's, that's the result of this whole escapade. So it's a weird feeling of emptiness, but also it's very powerful. Um, and I think it fits with everything the movie is saying. So uh, should we rate this one out of five uh, Tommy guns? Sure. Or, or chicken dinners. Okay. That's what Either he sends him out for, Josh. I don't know if you remember. So. Yes. He gets five for me. It's a five-star movie for me. Wow. All right. That's, I mean, I think, you know, you're in, in good company on that. I'm going to give it four, four out of five chicken dinners and or Tommy guns. But I think it's a great, it's a great movie. And I definitely enjoyed it even more this time than the first time. So uh, Dave, the Philistine, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, three stars for me, guys. But absolutely uh it's it's one of the greats as far as uh influence over the history of film that's come since so. you don't sound like you have a lot of yeah dave in your, you don't need a you don't need to no. back out of your horrible opinion <laughs> yeah what am i gonna do guys <laughs> yeah gonna you're gonna watch bonnie and clyde again until you like it oh, do i have to you should rewatch well, it sometime and see if you, you know. I will. I definitely Yeah, will. someday. Not, you know, give it some time to yeah. ruminate and then come back to it when we, yes. we do uh, Awesome Movie Year Redux or something. We'll yes. Ooh, we're going to reboot the season? We're going to reboot the whole show. I don't know. Why not? All right. We'll yes. figure it out. But first, Josh, <laughs> let's come back and talk about the legacy of the film. Let's do that. Thanks for getting us there. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special 10th retrospective season, we've returned to 1967 to talk about Jason's pick, Bonnie and Clyde. And I mean, as we've been talking about the legacy of this film beyond any specific uh, performer or filmmaker, 
is just the way that it ushered in this whole era of experimentation in the studios in Hollywood. Sure. And Warren Beatty became a huge part of that. And so did Gene Hackman, right? Um, but yeah, this is that amalgamation of classic American cinema meets French New Wave to give you this new Hollywood where it's storytelling in a new way, something that we hadn't seen before. And this type of risk taking might not have continued um, or at least not to this level if this wasn't such a breakout hit when it came out. Right. And, you know, you're talking about Easy Rider as maybe the defining film of the 60s or something that is seen as kicking this off. But Easy Rider, I feel like, would not exist without Bonnie and Clyde. I Yeah, I don't. I mean, that's a tough. It's so interesting because, uh, you know, when are we going to get to this point again? Because, like, right, the studios, what happened was in the 60s, the studios kind of stopped taking risks, stopped being creative, right? And they were putting out stuff that was not drawing. So what we got with New Hollywood was, hey, people are responding to personal stories, bigger auteurs, directors taking chances, right? And it just feels like we're in that place again in Hollywood, right? In a much different way. We all love going to the movies and seeing a Marvel movie, but is anyone making a mainstream risky movie right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the circumstances are so different now that a version of this now would look very different just because of the way that movies are financed and distributed and created and all that. And, you know, we have a much wider range of options right now for how you can make a movie and how you can release a movie versus 1967 when still, for the most part, you know, you made a movie with a Hollywood studio and it was, it definitely was released in theaters. There was nowhere else to do it. And so, you know, in order for that experimentation to reach an audience, it had to go through Hollywood studios. And that's not the case now. Um, but I mean, I agree that there's definitely a lot of stagnation among studio films and it would be exciting to see those movies uh, embrace a spirit of of experimentation, and who knows if we ever will. And Josh, I mean, obviously there have been other films like you talked about involving Bonnie and Clyde, but nobody's really remade this, which is nice, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, if we want to talk about that, um, there is a, a mini series from two thousand nine uh, that we might have briefly mentioned in our Driving Miss Daisy episode because it was directed by Bruce Beresford um, that starred Emil Hirsch and Holiday Granger as Bonnie and Clyde. And that's probably the closest that anyone's come to a remake of this because it was definitely in the spirit of this, although it was a basic cable TV thing, so they couldn't be, you know, particularly bold. It was not that great. And, you know, you talked about Frank Hamer not getting his due. In 2019, uh, the Netflix movie, The Highwaymen, uh, retold this story from the perspective of Frank Hamer and his partner and starred Kevin Costner, as Frank Hamer and Woody Harrelson as the other guy. And so that's, you know, we've gone from a movie that is all about fighting the system, destroying the system, lashing out at the system violently to a movie that celebrates the system. Yeah. So, and Kevin Costner, of course, uh, tracked down the untouchables and the on the untouchables. So that's interesting. Was the highway, did you see the highway men? I did not see it. I saw that miniseries from 09 because I remember I reviewed it and it, it was totally forgettable. I couldn't tell you a single thing about it now, but uh, I did not see The Highwaymen, but it is kind of, I, maybe it's better than my glib description there gives it credit for, but it is kind of funny that 
you know, we've come around now to the movie that's about the system capturing these terrible people. I mean, you know, give Hamer his credit. He was a decorated lawman who came out of semi-retirement to to take down a gang that was rampaging through the Midwest and the South, right? Yeah, no, that's true. And from a real standpoint, as as we've established, murder is bad. Mm. And uh, Bonnie and Good Clyde needed back. to be stopped. Thank you. But I think from an artistic standpoint, the the evolution there from a movie that is about uh, the downtrodden lashing out at the system versus a movie about the system reasserting itself is is a choice. Well, Josh, if you want to hear some good music dealing with similar subject matter, of course, you could listen to the Nebraska album by Bruce Springsteen. But you already knew that, so we can move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we talked about Arthur Penn, who, despite this movie's success and how influential it is, it had just kind of a journeyman career. Uh, Night Moves, which reteamed him with Gene Hackman is I think the only other Arthur Penn movie that I've seen and is quite good and definitely has that, that new Hollywood feel from 1975. I think um, he directed some other relatively successful films. As you were saying, Jason, he worked a lot in theater. Um, he also was a producer of Law and Order, the TV series, which of course was a huge success. And uh, for our, our little Vegas connection, the last uh, theatrical film that he directed in, I think, 1989 was Penn and Teller Get Killed, starring Penn and Teller, which is a notorious flop. So I'd like to see that movie, but also, it's, you know, Law and Order makes perfect sense because it casts so many New York theater actors in those, you know, um, single episodes. Right. But clearly, I mean, very successful and long career, but never really reached the heights of Bonnie and 10% Clyde of the profits for directing. <laughs> right. I mean, he didn't need, probably didn't need to work again at all, but, um, you know, artistically, uh, this is really his, the zenith of his work. Well, Josh, we've talked about Robert Benton on this show because of you and the late show, 1977, your pick there. And, uh, of course he won two Oscars as director and adapted screenplay, uh, writer for Kramer versus Kramer two years later, which I still don't think you've seen and is one of the all time great films. Yeah, I still haven't seen, which we did talk about in our uh, episode on The Late Show, and uh, I should check that out, as well as Twilight, the Paul Newman film, which is another one that I think you were recommending. They reteamed, right? No, I I, yeah. I, I, I like Nobody's Fool was the one I was Oh, about. okay, yeah, that's I'm getting those confused. But um, definitely, Benton, I mean, from this, he went on and worked mainly as a director of his own screenplays. Um, Newman, David Newman, also a very successful writer worked uh, again with Gene Hackman on the Superman films, the Christopher Reeve Superman films. He wrote the first three of those as well as, you know, other Hollywood stuff. And Warren Beatty, in addition to being a massive, massive movie star, a producer, a successful director, uh, eventually won an Oscar as best director for Reds, which I've never seen, but um, a very odd career as a director, films like Dick Tracy and Bullworth. And uh, the last movie that he made, uh, Rules Don't Apply from five years ago, which at the time I think was the first movie he'd made in like 15 years. And he's kind of semi-retired, but I feel like he's semi-retired at least in part because he has a very inflated ego and will only work on a project that he's able to fully control. And that's not really commercially viable anymore? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to go that far. I mean, but, you know, 
if that's what he wants to do, did he did he not earn that, you know, with his work oh, over totally. time? And um, I think people would have wanted to see the the Dick Tracy sequel that never happened. Right. Um, and Bullworth uh, is a masterpiece. So, um, yeah. Bullworth yeah. Rules. Um, but, you know, Josh, in the 70s, Shampoo, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, he is as big a movie star as there was and uh, a, a legendary ladies man of the Hollywood lore. Yes, yes, he is. And Shirley right. MacLaine's brother. Did you know that? I did know that. Mm. And that is uh, not really like a, an achievement, but it, it is a thing. It's a legacy. And, yeah. And, like- and Josh, <laughs> Gene Hackman is like Paul Newman to me, right? Who's as good as those guys? Yeah, Gene Hackman is one of the greatest actors ever. And, you know, even though he was also a massive movie star, I think he always had that sense of being like a character actor, being sort of an actor's actor and being devoted to the craft, whereas Warren Beatty was always a star. And that maybe was great because he had huge ambitions and maybe it would also lead to these crazy boondoggles. Um, but Hackman is just a great, uh, a great actor. He did, you know, as I said, reteamed with Arthur Penn for Night Moves. Uh, he won Oscars for The French Connection and for Unforgiven. Um, of course, you know, also worked with David Newman on the Superman movies, and he's a great Lex Luthor in that. Uh, he's great in Get Shorty, uh, kind of an underrated 70s movie called I Never Sang for My Father with Melvin Douglas. Is it was really, nominated, one of his five best actor nominations. And deservedly so. I think that movie's gotten uh, gotten a bit forgotten. And uh, Jason, you want to talk about the Royal Tenenbaums, of course? Yeah, he's great. He's uh, not just Royal Tenenbaums, Hoosiers, too. You know, two iconic roles that I love him in. Josh, I kind of want to just jump back to Warren Beatty real fast because you were talking about this and his ego and this and that. But he could have used that to just make like schlock, schlocky, safe movies. And like he was always taking risks. So you got to give him that, you know, Um, as far as Hackman. He's right now the oldest living best actor um, winner since Sidney Poitier just passed away. Like you said, just, you know, one after the next, uh, you know, not that he hasn't made bad movies also. But my favorite thing about him and uh, Dustin Hoffman might be that they were together. They were friends at the Pasadena Playhouse where they were voted least likely to succeed. And and Gene Hackman was given the lowest score ever of an actor at the Pasadena Playhouse. So keep working, kids, and you can become a two-time Oscar winner, a four-time novelist, and a Formula Ford racer like Gene Hackman, who retired and is just kind of living his life out and is one of the great American actors that, that's ever been. He is, yeah. And, and credit to him, too. I mean, not that I wouldn't have wanted to see more Gene Hackman movies, but he got to the point where he was obviously not really feeling it anymore and wanted to relax and enjoy his life. And he did. And uh, I have never seen Hoosiers, but I have seen Welcome to Moose Point, <laughs> the final movie that Gene Hackman oh, made in 2004. I kind of feel like uh, it deserves a rewatch just because it's his last movie. And I, I saw it too, um, but it wasn't good back then. But but Hoosiers is great. I think Dennis Hopper won an Oscar for that one, didn't he? Uh, quite possibly. Like, yeah, that's certainly one I should see. But, you know, my my interest in sports movies is low. But if there's any sports movie to see, Hoosiers is the one. Hey, Josh, speaking of Oscars, Faye Dunaway won an Oscar, as you know, for Network. Can't beat that movie. Yeah, I mean, she, again, was it was really early in her career. 
and was launched into big uh, major stardom in the 1970s network also chinatown three days of the condor i mean those are three of the biggest yeah. uh movies of the 70s and she works a lot yeah in a lot of stuff that maybe maybe like gene hackman she should have retired um but not everyone can um she definitely shifted uh as of the 80s and 90s into a lot of b movies and guest appearances on tv shows but she's still working steadily. Sadly, Faye Dunaway's next film is one that we may have mentioned in our American Beauty episode, The Man Who Drew God, featuring the comeback of Kevin Spacey. So mm. not the best choice for her we should, or anyone. You know, who knows? We haven't seen it yet, Josh. Maybe, maybe it's the one that, turn, that turns it all around. I got nothing on this. No, <laughs> so. Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, Michael J. Pollard, you know, have a busy working character actor who uh, passed away in 2019. And, and this might have also kind of been the height of his work just in terms of acclaim and, and, and notice, but worked steadily. Yeah, a lot of these, it's fun to see how many of these people re-teamed with Warren Tracy. Uh, Warren Tracy. Uh, Warren Beatty, Michael Pollard played Bug Bailey in Dick Tracy. And of course, when it's Christmas time and you watch Scrooge, he is the homeless guy who, spoiler alert, freezes to death and kind of gets uh, gets Bill Murray over, you know, over Bill Murray and changes the whole thing for him. So that's a pretty iconic performance there. Um, and that's all I got on that, Josh. No, that's fair. Estelle Parsons, she worked a lot on stage. She was nominated for five Tonys, a character actor in other films, but this is probably her most notable film role. Uh, did a lot of TV, and I always know her as Roseanne's yeah. mother from Roseanne, which she is fantastic at, um, and still has been making appearances on The Connors, the spinoff version of it. Um, in, up until very recently, I think right before the pandemic, she had made appearances, but um, on recent episodes, she hasn't been able to, you know, she's in her 90s and they don't want to risk her health and whatever. But I think that she is the kind of actor that as soon as it's possible and as soon as she feels safe, she's going to be back on that show. And that's great. And it was cool. I remember her as that and Shelly Winters was her mom, right? So lots of good stuff there. We got to mention Josh Theodora Van Runkle, the, uh, the costume designer here. The Bonnie and Clyde look was a huge fashion sensation with the long skirts, the beret, and the short jacket. You ever wear that look, Josh? Mm, no, but maybe I should. Ooh, and get a Rachel for a haircut. So just combine all the fads <laughs> there. No, but I mean, you know, when we're talking about the influence of this movie, that, you know, usually when a movie can break into fashion, that's a good sign for it, right? Yeah, and especially a period piece that would have looked nothing like anyone would have been dressing in 1967 to, to inspire that is pretty impressive. Warren Beatty is the only person to be nominated for acting, directing, writing, and producing the same movie in the same year. And he did it twice with Heaven Can Wait in Reds. I haven't seen either of those films, have you? Nope. All right. Well, there's some stuff for us to, to check out. Um, the last legacy thing I want to mention is the Bonnie and Clyde car, the actual car that is filled with bullets that we have here in Nevada, the pride of prim Nevada. You can go see it <laughs> in the middle of a casino. It is very weird to see it there, but if you go to prim Nevada, Check out the Bonnie and Clyde car. 
Uh, I have seen it. Have you, Jason? Have you seen it? Did it used to be in uh, the Imperial Palace? I don't know. It's been in Prim for a long time. They do have a a whole car museum in, well, what used to be the Imperial Palace that's now the Link Hotel Casino. But the Bonnie and Clyde car, I think, has been in Prim like since I moved here in the 90s. So um, it's their big claim to fame there. Well, I think we're going to have to have an awesome movie or field trip. There you go. We should have recorded this episode in the car. In the you, you can't sit in it. It's encased in like a plexiglass thing. But um, if anyone can get us we... in, it's Dave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this film, Jason? Watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Watch the movie. And if you don't like it like Dave, just keep watching it until you do like it. So that is Bonnie and Clyde. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. We are on social media. Josh, awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, Jay Harris Comedy or Jason Harris Comedy on all the socials. Go for jason.com. Frank Hamer, take that website out, would (laughs) you? My website, not much better, joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, we had to move things around. We had to flip-flop a few episodes and now we're talking about our biggest flop and for that we're going to 1984 the notorious picture by francis ford coppola the cotton club so tune in next time for the cotton club and thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year make sure to follow awesome movie year on facebook at awesome movie pod on twitter and at awesome movie year on instagram And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.